0: and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Rodney Alcala. Rodrigo Alcala Bucor was born on August 23rd 1943 in San Antonio Texas. So as we do let's get into some history for that time. In 1943 World War II was still going on. The building of the Pentagon had been completed. The US announced that food rationing would go into effect. The US and the UK met during the Quebec conference to discuss the further invasion of France and Italy. Finally, Allied forces invaded Italy, forcing the Italian government to surrender quickly. Italian dictator Benito Mussolini had already been overthrown. Then Italy declared war on Germany and agreed to help the Allies in exchange for leniency for Italy, but getting the Nazis out was proving a much more difficult task than they had anticipated. German forces liquidated the Jewish ghetto. German forces in North Africa did surrender, but more than 2,000 citizens of Budapest were sent to concentration camps. At this point, now the Allied leaders of the UK and the US met with the Soviet Union in Iran. The British and American troops bombed Hamburg, which killed 42,000 German civilians. But, on a lighter note, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League was created. The U.S.'s longest-running Broadway musical, Oklahoma, debuted. The Great Depression had finally ended. The Golden Globe Awards began and one of the most popular singers at that time was Frank Sinatra. Other famous people born in 1943 were Chevy Chase, Billie Jean King, Janis Joplin, Robert De Niro, John Denver, Mick Jagger, and Jim Morrison. So, this was, of course, the atmosphere that Rodney was born into. Now, Rodney's parents were Raul Alcala Bucor and Ana Maria Gutierrez. Their first child was Raul, born in 1941, then Marie Therese in 1942, Rodney in 1943, and finally his youngest sister in 1947 all of them born in San Antonio. His maternal grandmother also lived with the family. For all intents and purposes, his family was close, loving. There is no reported past mental health issues that I could find, nor any abuse or neglect inflicted upon him or any of his siblings. Now of course we can't be 100% sure and as far as my research went, he hasn't said that any of that was an issue. When Rodney was 5 years old, he started kindergarten at St. Joseph Catholic Elementary but then changed schools to Mount Sacred Heart. By all accounts, he got along with his peers and there were no issues with school. When he was eight years old, his grandmother became ill, though with what I couldn't find. She told her daughter, Rodney's mother, that she wanted to spend her final years back in Mexico. So, Rodney's family packed up and moved from San Antonio across the border. He continued his education, but this time he went to a non-Catholic school, which would have been a considerable change, I assume, and at some point, not too long after, his grandmother died, but the family remained in Mexico. Now when Rodney was 11 years old, and for reasons unknown, Raul, Rodney's father, abandoned the family and went back to the United States. Sometime after, Anna took the children and moved back to the United States, settling in the Los Angeles area. His mother then enrolled him into a Catholic school in East Los Angeles. He began his freshman year of high school at a private Catholic school. And again, he was popular, attractive, the girls loved him, he was charming and well-mannered. He was on the yearbook committee, he was on the track team, and he even learned to play the piano. But he eventually told his mother that he had had enough of private school and demanded that she allow him to go to public school, which of course she did. And in 1960, he graduated from Montebello High School. So that's all we have for his childhood, and I know it's not a lot, but it's enough. So let's get into it. I wasn't really able to find any background information on either of his parents. I was able to see that his father was born in San Antonio, but not where his mother was born. But I believe that it's safe to say that he was a second-generation Mexican-American, being that his maternal grandmother stated, She wanted to live what was left of her life back in Mexico after discovering that she was dying. He and his family were uprooted in their younger years and moved to Mexico. And I'm sure there was a certain level of cultural shock, but I doubt it would be enough to have affected Rodney in any real negative way. His grandmother's passing would of course been difficult for the family, but again there is no mention whatsoever that he was overly devastated or had any extreme reaction to this outside of what is normal. However, his father abandoning the family and how he felt about that was mentioned in one article. According to the quote, there has been speculation that he had a number of emotional and trust issues caused by this abandonment." Rodney was 11 at the time and I do believe this abandonment, coupled with his age at the time of the abandonment, is at least noteworthy. It is important. So, healthy human development requires physical and emotional care to be met When these are not met, it can become really traumatic. A person who has experienced abandonment in childhood may be more likely to have long term mental health issues. They tend to have more intense mood swings or anger later in life. It can make them prone to anxiety, depression, and codependence. But here's the part I want you to take from this. According to GoodTherapy.org, abandonment issues are also linked to Borderline Personality Disorder and Attachment Anxiety. This diagnosis comes into play later, so let's talk about it. Borderline Personality Disorder affects how you think and feel about yourself and others, which causes some issues with everyday functioning such as self-image issues, having a hard time managing your emotions and behaviors, patterns in unstable relationships, intense fears of abandonment, instability. There are highly inappropriate levels of anger, impulsiveness, and super frequent mood swings. There could also be periods of rapid self-identity and self-image changes, shifts in goals and values, times of stress-related paranoia, and sometimes even losing contact with reality. Behavior can be risky and impulsive, so keep that in the back of your mind. Not long after his father left, his mother moved him and his siblings back to the United States and to Los Angeles. From there, we have no reports of bad behavior or inappropriate actions. He never tortured animals. He was not known to start fires. There was absolutely no mention of him wetting the bed at an inappropriate age. Now, of course, the McDonald triad has been proven to not really be statistically relevant anymore, but the behaviors are still nonetheless concerning, and he displayed none of them. In fact, he was very popular in high school. He was involved in school programs. His peers liked him. He was described as rather handsome and, again, charming. Now, we know that many serial killers display a level of charm, but I don't believe he stood out in any way as someone who was troubled or potentially dangerous. I saw no actions or patterns in behavior that would say this, this is why he became a serial killer. But of course, we don't have the in-depth, detailed, chronological information like we do other serial killers so this is just a broad overview. So let's get back into it. After high school Rodney entered into a program in North Carolina to become a paratrooper and signed up to join the US Army and after basic training he served as a clerk. Now here's something interesting. The next year his father passed away rather suddenly and the entire family went to the funeral so we have to assume that rodney's mother and his siblings kept in contact with their father after he left regardless after the funeral he returned to his post in 1963 when he was 20 years old he showed up out of nowhere on his mother's doorstep telling her that he had hitchhiked from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, nearly 3,000 miles back to Los Angeles. He had officially gone AWOL. And for those of you who might not know, AWOL is a military term meaning absent without leave. He did not have permission to abandon his post, as it were. It is documented that Rodney suffered a nervous breakdown. The military psychiatrist that saw him diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder and it was discovered later that he had been accused of sexual misconduct during his time in the army. He would be diagnosed with other personality disorders later, but we'll get to that. Receiving a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder would mean that he was displaying a disregard for right and wrong, chronic lying, callousness and disrespect toward others, using his charm to manipulate others for his own gain, Um, arrogance, repeatedly violating the rights of others through the use of intimidation and lying impulsivity lack of empathy significant irritability or aggression and so on the list is long so he was given a medical discharge and sent on his way in 1964 and for the next four years he laid low not much is really known about what he did during that time But it is theorized that he began having violent, sadistic sexual fantasies, because in September of 1968, when Rodney was 25 years old, he committed his very first serious crime. Eight-year-old Tolly Shapiro was walking to school when Rodney lured her into his car saying he was a friend of her parents' and that he had something to show her. She later stated she was wary of him but believed what he said and got in. He then took her to his Hollywood apartment. Now thankfully someone witnessed him taking her. They followed him to see where he was going and then had to find a payphone because there were no cell phones back then and they called the police. Using the information the witness provided, it led the police straight to Rodney's apartment. One of the officers at the scene said that they knocked on his door and Rodney, naked, answered the door and he told them, you know, I'll be right back, I'm getting dressed he then shut and locked the door that officer kicked the door in and the scene he walked in on is forever seared into his mind he stated that he could see tolly's body on the floor in the kitchen blood all around her there was a metal pipe laying across her throat Rodney escaped, naked by the way, out the back door, but in that moment the police officer stated his first priority was that little girl. At first they thought she was dead, but then she began to make gagging noises, trying desperately to breathe. Rodney had beat, raped, and attempted to strangle her with a 10-pound metal bar. Ultimately, Tolly was in a coma for 33 days after her attack, but once she was well enough, her parents fled and moved to Mexico. Inside his apartment was a treasure trove of photography equipment, and tons of photos of very young girls. Everywhere they found his identification and learned that his name was Rodney Alcala and that he had been a student at UCLA studying film and photography. But, alas, Rodney had escaped. And curiously, in that same month, he was accepted into New York University's School of the Arts undergraduate program, only it was under the alias... John Berger, sometimes John Berger. There's two pronunciations. I don't know which one is correct Berger or Berger. Interesting note again during this time at college, it is said that he studied under director Roman Polanski, which I find quite fitting, but I digress. From 1968, the year of his first attack to 1971, he was on the FBI's most wanted list. But he lived in New York, out in the open, in full view and undetected. He sort of adopted the persona of a hippie, a goofy film student, photographer, an attractive single young man, always donning a warm and confident smile. In June 1971, while in Manhattan, Rodney murdered 23-year-old flight attendant Cornelia Creeley. She had been moving into her new apartment. And after not being able to reach her, her boyfriend finally called the police. Once the police gained entry into her apartment, they found her body. She had been bound some fabric shoved down into her throat she had been stripped naked strangled with her own pantyhose and Rodney had also bitten one of her breasts but during these times you know there was no internet there were no cell phones they had no suspects and the case went cold for nearly 40 years During his summers on the East Coast he was employed as a camp counselor at an all-girls summer drama camp in New Hampshire and he also worked as a photographer. But in 1971 two girls from the camp just happened to recognize him on a wanted poster that was hanging in the local post office because they were going to send some letters. They then told the camp director who recognized him immediately and contacted the FBI. They were thankfully able to arrest him and extradite him back to California and at this point he was 28 years old. So during the trial for the kidnapping and attack on the 8 year old little girl, he did receive a life sentence. but. In August of 1974, after serving less than three years, Rodney was released. They could only convict him of assault because they couldn't get Tolly's family to come testify against him. Under the quote, indeterminate sentencing program, unquote, at that time, it allowed the parole board to release criminals if they showed evidence of rehabilitation. He did have to register as a sex offender, though. Yeah, I know, guys, it turns my stomach, too. So once he was out, he found work as a photographer, but it didn't take him long to get into trouble again. Two months after being released in Huntington Beach, he kidnapped a 13-year-old girl and forced her to smoke marijuana with him. Luckily, a park ranger caught a whiff of the smoke and went looking for the people using. Rodney was arrested and convicted on a parole violation as well as selling drugs to a minor and he went back to jail. He was again declared, quote, reformed after a little over two years and released. In the summer of 1977, his parole officer thought it would be, you know, perfectly fine to allow Rodney to move back to New York. It is believed that, not long after he got back, he killed 23-year-old Ellen Jane Hover, whose parents owned this famous nightclub, and she was also Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr.'s goddaughter. Witnesses said the last person she was seen with was a photographer named John Berger. Her remains were found buried on the Rockefeller estate. Within a couple of months of being back in New York, he then went back to Los Angeles and began working for the Los Angeles Times. And then he also did some wedding photography on the side. Oh, and side note, he was brought in for questioning during the Hillside Strangler case, but was dismissed as a possible suspect. Rodney then met and murdered 18-year-old Jill Barcombe. He raped her. He strangled her with the leg of her own pants. He then smashed her face in with a rock. Her body was later found sort of rolled up in a ball in a ravine. In 1978, Rodney Alcala was selected to be a contestant on the game show called The Dating Game. He was introduced as a quote successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the darkroom at the age of 13, fully developed between takes you might find him skydiving or motorcycling unquote. Rodney stated that he was a banana to be unpeeled. The girl that was asking the three men questions though she couldn't see them liked Rodney's responses and at the end of the episode she chose him. The camera closed in on his face. And ugh, his smile was so much like a Cheshire cat. It is a bit unnerving. So, the woman and Rodney met up backstage and, you know, began talking. She later said that the longer she spoke to him alone, the more uncomfortable and unnerved she became. So she decided to decline the actual date and experts think that this rejection could have been an accelerant, if you will, to his later killings. The mindset of a narcissist does not take rejection well at all. Of course, for her, it was probably the best decision she ever made. Then, 27-year-old Georgia Wixt was murdered by Rodney in her Malibu apartment. He had raped, strangled her, and beaten her to death with a hammer. Then, 32-year-old Charlotte Lamb's body was found in the laundry room of an apartment complex. Rodney, too, had raped and strangled her. Then, on June 14, 1979, 21-year-old Jill Parento, a computer program keypunch operator, decided to go out with a friend to this nice little bar and there she met Rodney Alcala. The next day, she was found dead in her apartment, bound, raped, and strangled. At this point, Rodney was 36 years old. He was asking people to model for him, young women teen girls even younger teen boys and a lot of them naked at huntington beach on june 20th 1979 two friends 12 year olds robin and bridget were you know the best of friends and they loved to dance and do gymnastics and in fact on that day Robin was supposed to start answering phones at a ballet studio for work to be able to take lessons there for free, so to speak. Robin showed up at Bridget's house to hang out for a bit before she would go to the ballet studio. The girls walked across the street to the beach where they encountered Rodney Alcala. He asked them if he could take their picture for a photo contest and Robin happily agreed but a neighbor who happened to recognize the girls and be on the beach saw this strange man talking to them and asked, Hey, is everything okay? You girls all right? And Rodney kind of turned his face away really quickly and walked away. And the girls decided to leave the beach and go back to Bridget's house. When Robin stated she needed to leave to get to the studio, Bridget told her to just take her bike and ride fast. Robin agreed and rode off. Twelve days later, Robin's mutilated remains were found. Rodney had dumped her in a remote location 40 miles from the beach up into the hills there was nothing left really but her bones. Bridget described the man that had stopped them on the beach and had taken their picture and a composite sketch was created and Rodney's parole officer saw it. He contacted the authorities and told them that he believed Rodney was the kidnapper, that he was a convicted sex offender, pedophile and what he had done to little Tolly. Now, during this time, Rodney also had a girlfriend who was into photography as well, and she says that she suspected nothing, that there was no change in his personality or behavior. Rodney was telling people that he was a professional photographer, and he wanted them to model for him. One 15-year-old girl that he photographed, he knocked her unconscious and raped her. She was only able to escape him when he walked away to relieve himself. Now once Rodney had seen the composite sketch on TV, he chemically straightened his hair and cut it much shorter. Not long after, he was officially named as a quote, person of interest in 12 year old Robin's case. They took photographs of people that resembled Rodney along with one of him specifically and showed them to witnesses who had seen him on the beach that day that Robin was taken and every single witness pointed Rodney out. It was at this point that Rodney told his then girlfriend that he would like to pack up and possibly move to Dallas to quote broaden his career opportunities and yet, Rodney traveled to Seattle, Washington, and he rented a storage unit, filling it with his things, then returned to Los Angeles and told no one of his trip to Seattle. On July 24, 1979, Rodney Alcala was arrested while living at his mother's house in Monterey Park one of his sisters visited him in jail and not realizing the conversation was being recorded he asked his sister to clear out a locker that he had rented in seattle so of course the authorities are scrambling and they searched the house and found the receipt for the storage locker and they hurried to beat his sister there thankfully they were successful Inside that locker, they found Robin's little earrings that she had been wearing, along with a lot of other jewelry that he kept as his trophies, along with thousands of photographs of women, young women, young girls, young boys, some quite sexually explicit, and they suspected there were many, many more murders than they knew about. In June 1980, Rodney was sentenced to death for the murder of Robin and then, you guys are not going to believe this, in 1984 the conviction was overturned on technicalities during the trial. Thankfully, he was kept imprisoned and another trial happened in 1986 where he was convicted of murdering Robin again. And again, the conviction was overturned. The defense felt that he was not given proper protections. But thankfully, again, he was kept in prison as it was determined if yet another trial was necessary. At this point, Rodney was 58 years old and now forensics had come a long way and they resubmitted evidence for DNA testing, and they found that Rodney was responsible for other deaths. His semen was matched to other women in the Los Angeles area, and not just where one would suspect semen to be found, a very specialized local area, if you will. The semen was found on many places on the body, indicating he had assaulted the girls on several occasions. It was then that they found out just how twisted and disgusting he truly was. You see, Rodney is a sexual sadist. He would strangle these girls until they were unconscious. He would rape them. They would revive and then he would strangle them again until they were nearly dead. Rinse and repeat until he finally strangled them until they were completely dead. He got off on seeing the complete terror in these women's eyes. The fine line between life and death and the control he had over it, that's what arouses him the most. So in January 2010, he was tried again, only this time 66-year-old Rodney decided to defend himself. His first known victim, who is a grown woman, a mother, and a private chef, was able to take the stand against him. She says that Rodney apologized to her, but she didn't hear it, she didn't care. She stated he should have never been freed after her attack. He was, of course, unsuccessful in defending himself and was convicted again, and this time for additional murders that had been linked to him through the DNA. To this day, they are still trying to match photographs of people he took with missing persons cases, and there are several. It is strongly believed that he has killed far more than has ever been proven. Now, while in prison, he has been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, malignant narcissistic personality disorder with psychopathy, and sexual sadism comorbidities. Thankfully, he is still on death row. So, folks... Oh, this case just makes me sick. You guys know I do my best to dig for any possible reason why these people could have done the things that they did. Genetics or inherited traits, possible head trauma, physical abuse as a child, you know, anything. Other than the abandonment, there is nothing. Nothing. In my own opinion, this man I mean, what else can we say other than he was born evil? With the background information about him, I just don't see where he would have been conditioned through environment or anything to be this horrible man that he is. The song he played at his 2010 trial was a song about how someone wants to kill, kill, kill and have veins in their teeth, and so on. It's disgusting. He is just a sick, disgusting bastard. I shouldn't say that. I know. I'm showing some bias compared to other podcasts. I know. And I knew about Rodney before, but I didn't know just how sick and demented he really was. I just have a much harder time with cases that involve children. You guys know this. And I agree with Tolly that he should have been put away for good after her attack and almost murder. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at Serial Underscore Killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. I have a website, SerialKilling.Squarespace.com, and consider donating to the podcast. It takes a long time to put these together, but I love doing it for you. But most importantly, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you guys. You don't know how much I appreciate you guys because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you're listening to me and that's crazy and fantastic and I appreciate it.